thank everyone for, or for, for those of us that um, responded to uh, the email that went out this past week from the elders uh, regarding the current political environment. Um, it's, uh, just covet your prayers as um, the elders, you know, discuss and uh, seek a way to, um, you know, help communicate the things that matter to our congregation and um, navigate this uncertainty. Um, one of the things that I loved about what um, was written in there was that um, standard uh, impulse for Christians is to pray. And nothing, made, nothing, ha- nothing has ever been made worse by praying about it. And that just brought joy to my heart when I read that. Um, we are called to pray about it. And I started to be thinking about other impulses that I personally have um, when I'm met with uncertainty, when I'm met with anger, when I'm met with uh, situations that I'm not sure how to think through something or pray through something. Um, one of my personal impulses, and I would uh, commend this to all of you, um, is the impulse for historical study. And what's that? Yeah. I haven't had peanut butter and jelly in the middle of the night in a long time. Um, no, this week I've been in um, John Meekham's new book, a new biography on Thomas Jefferson. It's, it's very good. Um, and uh, something struck me as I was reading it. It's uh, from an 1803 letter to John Page, who was the governor of Virginia. Jefferson said this. He said, We have both been drawn from our natural passion, for study and tranquility, by times which took us from the freedom of choice, times, however, which planting a new world with the seeds of just government will produce a remarkable era in the history of mankind. It was incumbent on those, therefore, who fell into them to give up every favorite pursuit and lay their shoulder to the work of the day. And it was that phrase, the work of the day, that really stuck with me. Uh, because it's also a phrase that I saw repeatedly in my study of their text for this morning. Um, And it reminded me that each day is going to have its challenges. Um, And how can we um, meet those challenges? How can we as mature believers, um, believers who know that Jesus is on the throne, um, how can we best respond? What is it that that we need um, to best respond to the work of the day, the work at hand. Each day brings those challenges. Last week we heard part one of Paul's discourse on 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, But remember that it's important for us to think of the whole section from, if you grab your Bibles, uh, from chapter 8, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 1. That entire section could be seen as a discourse on maybe Christian freedom. Uh, Pointedly, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, to not let this liberty of ours somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. The thing that sparked this discussion was controversy of whether or not the, uh, the Christians should be eating meat sacrificed to idols. Sure, Paul says, you and I both know that it's just meat. Nothing happened to it when it was offered up, but, but knowing, knowing isn't everything. The truth is that some spend their whole lives 
around idol worship. And eating sacrificial meat is actually just too close to the way that they lived before they met Christ. So for you to flaunt your freedom in front of them would be sinful. And as we talked about in the past few weeks, in our culture, there's, there's direct parallels who could be um, maybe seen to, to substance abuse or other things like that. Choices that we can make that are we flaunting our freedom in, in, in front of someone else who has been struggling through a particular thing. But Paul warns, uh, wants us to, uh, to give, Paul wants to give them a more direct example, and he wants to use himself as a model. Remember how I said in, the first, uh, in, the, in, in this section in 1 Corinthians, it goes from chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, verse 1. And the last line of the section, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Ever since Steve Chastain preached um, uh, another sermon earlier, I think from chapter 4, earlier in the year, um, where Paul says that uh, earlier, it's really um, stuck with me. Because especially in light of the early part of the chapter where, where Paul's pouring out and he's saying, like, I don't like these divisions that are popping up and these factions that are going on in the, in the church, um, you would think that Paul would say, be imitators of Christ. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at Christ. But here Paul is saying, Imi- imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. What that tells me is that Christian leadership matters. What that tells me is that um, how we live our lives matters. And if we're actually in the business of pointing to Jesus and saying he's the king and I'm going to imitate him, that actually needs to look like something. I would argue that it needs to look like the gospel. Chapter 9 is a powerful hinge in this argument because Paul isn't just scolding them for flaunting freedom. He's giving them an example of how he is putting his money where his mouth is. As we saw last week, he's going to spend the first 14 verses of of chapter 9, defending what could be called apostolic rights. Basically, whenever possible, ministry should be a paid gig. And he's going to lay this on pretty thick. Uh, Paul is going to use his favorite arguing tool, the rhetorical question. And he uses some 16 of them to lay out his case. And then after laying it all out, he tells them this, picking up in chapter 9, verse 15. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing this so that they may be applied in my case. Listen, I'm not telling you this so that you'll start paying me. Indeed, I would rather die than that. No one will deprive me of my ground for boasting. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid on me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this... Of my own will, I have a reward, but it is not of my own will. I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my proclamation, I may make this gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Paul says, look, I have every right to be paid for my services to the church, but I'm not going to do that because I would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not writing this so that you'll start paying me, Paul says. You know, 
Peterson translates, if I proclaim the message, it's not to get something out of it for myself. I am compelled to do it. I'm doomed if I don't. For Paul, the gospel was something so powerful, so compelling, so unifying, that he would do anything to show the church in Corinth that it was offered to them free of charge by a God who loves them. And it is this proclaiming of the gospel that evidently Paul sees as his reward. Take a personal inventory, new hope. Take a personal audit. When was the last time that you thought of the gospel the proclamation of the gospel as a reward or maybe as a gift, the gift of the privilege of proclaiming the message. Think about that, that the God of the universe, the God of all creation has looked at you and said, here's my most precious gift, the gospel of my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to help me spread that everywhere. That's incredible. And then he climaxes with this in verse 19. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. So Paul was what we might call a freelance missionary. And there really wasn't a a cultural context or a cultural category for that um, in his day and age. The, The truth is that in time, the church would evolve and over time develop structures on how to hold church leaders accountable. We would develop seminaries and church councils and elder boards and deacons and the presbytery and congregational votes. And we would develop um, structures where senior pastors build into associate pastors. And although there would be various ways of doing it, the bottom line, that there would be some level of accountability. But, But none of that had happened in the first century. So the church in Corinth needed, they needed some model. They needed some model to cling to that would be comparable to what um, a pastor is today. And it would have been easy for the the uh, the Corinth church to assume that Paul fit into the category of a philosopher. Four models of philosophers um, and how philosophers made their living were commonly accepted. First of all, the philosopher could charge fees for his teaching. Granted, this could be easily exploited. And often they were accused of greed and manipulation of their students. It also, it also relied heavily upon reputation and perhaps gave way to ear tickling. Two, the philosopher could be supported by a wealthy patron and be kind of like the resident intellectual in a household. Again, the problem would be, well, what if the things you're saying goes against the, things, the ways the patron lives their life? Would you somehow be beholden to your patron? Would you manipulate your teaching around his behavior? Or you could beg on the streets. And this is what the cynics did. Uh, The cynics were philosophers um, who rejected the goods and connections of this world. So property, marriage, religion, luxury. Uh, The more they would achieve, the more they rejected these things, the more they felt they would achieve spiritual happiness. Uh, The word cynic actually comes from the Greek word uh, meaning of a dog or dog-like because cynics supposedly live as filthily as dogs. Uh, For obvious reasons, this was seen as demeaning um, and it was also quite dangerous. So you could charge, you could have a wealthy patron, or you could beg on the streets. Paul has chosen a fourth option. Um, You could work in a trade in order to support yourself. 
By doing this, you run the risk of being seen with a low social status, and you suffered from serious losses of time and energy that you might otherwise put towards your work as a philosopher. Ultimately, though, this fourth option did allow for independence. Um, It made you quite a dangerous philosopher. Now, the first two options were most commonly accepted, and Paul followed the fourth model, at least early on in his ministry. Acts 18 tells us that Paul made his living as a tent maker. Um, later on, however, there were hints of him accepting um, support in other certain situations, um, especially when he was imprisoned and he relied on other people for support. Um, for more on that, we can read about in 2 Corinthians where this really starts heating up. Um, and maybe the best example of it is in Philippians where this is it's just this letter where Paul is pouring himself out in thankfulness Um, to a church who is supporting them. And this is probably a good time for me to personally mention uh, that I, as you know, spent 10 years in a tent-making business in a way, um, trying to pour myself into New Hope um, with my focus being on our church. Um, But the church wasn't in a position at that time to uh, offer a salary, and I certainly understood that they weren't. Um, So to do that, I needed to have employment. So I worked as an exterminator for 10 years, um, and I looked for opportunities to be the gospel there. Um, And all the while, I became a pastoral associate here. I was a house church leader. I was a, um, I still am a house church leader, a worship leader. Um, And I was able to look for ways to do ministry, even though um, I, uh, I wasn't receiving a paycheck for it necessarily, and you know, frankly, I'm extremely grateful that um, we have the opportunity to, to have that now. Um, but at the time, for Paul, tent making was actually seen as menial labor. Um, tent making was the worst of a slave. Uh, it was not the kind of thing that you would expect from an apostle. After all, haven't other leaders come through Corinth and accepted financial support? I mean, Apollos, um, maybe even Peter? Uh, Surely, if Paul was really an apostle, wouldn't he act in a more distinguished manner and stop messing around with all these lower classes of laborers? Because at the time, again, there wasn't an established model for Christian ministers. Uh, There was schooling in those days, to be sure, but there weren't seminaries and degree programs that were associated with sanctioning particular levels of ordination. It's not like Paul was working his way up to full-time vocational ministry while working as a tent maker. Typically, tent making was considered by many to be the work of a, of a lower social cl- status, lower social class. It, it was slaves who made the tents, or perhaps freedmen who had recently been released from slavery. And this was a bold move for Paul. Not only does he risk insulting the Corinthian elite by not accepting their money, he instead takes on the form of a slave. This is deliberate socioeconomic self-abasement, self-humiliation, and status reduction, renunciation. One speaking for the elite of a city, Cicero, who said, a room without books is like a body without a soul, once referred to craftsmen, petty shopkeepers, and all that filth of the cities, he said that the work of the artisan is degrading, and that the very wages of a laborer are the badges of slavery. Ouch. Culturally, this is very different from what we see today, particularly in American culture and society. 
terms such as craftsmen and shopkeepers and artisans are held in rather high regard, I think. Um, As I've engaged in my own tent making, it's truly been a privilege for me to, to work alongside carpenters and mechanics and electricians and plumbers and exterminators and various other uh, blue-collar professionals. In, in my opinion, our country is a far better place because of skilled craftsmen doing their work well. The mere thought of insulting someone who makes the water run correctly or the power outlets work properly is frankly pretty scary. But evidently, the first century world was a bit different. So for Paul, not only does he willingly sign on for this life, He makes it a part of his ground for boasting. The implication here is that his life as a lowly tent maker would actually have been part of his strategy for winning people to the gospel. Picking up in verse 20. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Do you see what he did there? Anyway, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessing. Well, this brings up an interesting point, because we keep hearing this gospel thing keep being brought up. So, so what, what is it? What is the gospel anyway? Calvin said, that is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. He said, That without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty. All wisdom is folly before God. Strength is weakness. And all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and the slaves free. Okay, John, that's pretty good. You still didn't really define what the gospel is there. I mean, think about it. How would you define the gospel? Maybe one of the, my favorite definitions that I've read recently, this isn't me, but um, it says that the gospel is God's royal announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures, has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. When the gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. That's a pretty good, pretty good definition. I like that. And the truth is, we could spend hours picking that apart line by line, um, going into all the different nuances of it. But there's three things I want us to remember. Three things that I believe Paul had in his mind when he was making this choice to live in this particular context, when he was thinking about how do I live the gospel um, in the work of the day. And number one is the announcement of the kingdom. 
Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus says that the kingdom was, it it was at hand. It, It was within your grasp. It was so close you could touch it. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God is right here and right now, but there's also a sense in which there's a further consummation coming down the road because this ship is headed somewhere. So in a way, central, crucial to the gospel proclamation is living in that anticipatory state that we get to live now like it's then. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. I think that's what Paul was doing. He was making his choices based on the fact that Jesus was king. Crucial to that gospel proclamation has to be that Jesus is king now. And we get to anticipate that consummated kingdom in our lives. Some people reduce the gospel to, well, Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. Eh, I guess you could get there. I think the better way to put it is God's kingdom rule is at hand and you're asked to get on board. So first is the kingdom of God. The second is this paschal mystery, as our Catholic brethren call it, or or the Christ event. Jesus was actually a first century Palestinian Jew. Jesus is not some fairy tale we tell our kids in order to help them love others. Crucial to the gospel proclamation is that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, became incarnate, announced His rule and raid, and then purposefully, purposefully died on a cross, was resurrected on the third day, and then exalted as King of all. But if He wasn't actually a dude... If he didn't actually, if he wasn't actually a first century Palestinian Jew, someone that we might, we're, we're learning this phrase in crux right now, Jesus was Israel's representative Messiah. Israel was supposed to be God's blessing to the world. It was God's rescue mission for the world, and Jesus was the climax of that. If he wasn't actually a first century Palestinian Jew, then we should be home preparing for our Super Bowl parties. The Christ event was actually something that actually took place. And number three, the gospel is something that is by grace through faith. We participate in this narrative because of God's unmerited favor to us. None of us has ever done anything to earn God's love or to earn our way into God's kingdom. Paul tells us that we all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. Instead, God gives us this gift, and then the way we respond to God's grace is by living through faith, living our lives in the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, that requires a big picture gospel. Big picture gospel. I think it it gives us first a responsibility to the gospel. When we think about grace in our lives, um, the truth is that grace is efficacious. It is effective. It is productive. It is potent. Please don't misunderstand me. God's grace is unmerited favor, but when God gives you a gift, He expects you to open it. And that's actually going to look like something. It stands to reason that 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 is, um, it might not look like your own comfort. It might not look like your own ambition. It may look like you taking the low road. It may look like you looking like a slave 
Um, I don't know what it looks like exactly for you, but as a community, that's one of the reasons we gather together so we can build into each other. Um, I think about, um, I heard just this week, uh, my mother was talking to me about, um, in 1981, when she was pregnant with me, uh, she goes to a Billy Graham crusade, which was in Memorial Stadium. And she said it was just really weird how things started to come together because apparently um, uh, Joe Ehrman, who was an old, old cult, um, who was uh, heavily involved at Grace Fellowship, where my family was involved in, and uh, helped my mother kind of come to Christ. And um, anyway, he, he was there, and he gave testimony, and um, she started seeing all these. It was a very Baltimore-heavy event. Um, Graham chose to specifically like pour into local congregations to get them to, to bring people down there. And, and what Graham does is he gathers these stadiums full of people, and he wants to tell them that God's grace is free. I think about Jason. I think about how Jason had a responsibility to the gospel, and he says, okay, I think I'm called to partner, join, join and partner with a denomination that I'm not necessarily familiar with, but I will join them in order to actually live like we have one holy apostolic and Catholic church, like actually live and break down denominational walls because I'm, I, that, I believe, is my responsibility to the gospel. That's exciting. See, we have a responsibility to the gospel, but we also need to think about the perspective of the gospel. The danger is for us to dwell on the small stuff in the big scheme. Um, John McKay, it's a football day, so, or a Super Bowl day, so I can have a football story. Uh, John McKay was a football coach uh, at USC, and he wanted to help his team recover after a suffering, after suffering uh, this humiliating loss to, to Notre Dame. Uh, apparently, USC was like a pretty good team, and they end up losing to Notre Dame 51 to zero. Uh, and McKay goes into the locker room, and he sees this group of beaten, worn out, thoroughly depressed young men, and he says, um, "Men, let's keep this into perspective." There are 800 million people in China who don't even know this game was played. Yesterday we were in our, um, in our tech training, which was really a great time. We're thankful for, uh, for everyone that came out to it. Um, but uh, Doug Thomas, he shared with us this text from the message. He says, this is Paul from Colossians 3. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what is going around in Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Mike Bird says that the gospel is the glue between doctrine, experience, mission, and practice. It permeates all other doctrines. It defines the church's mission, and it constitutes our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. It's not just that our faith should be seen through the lens of the gospel. Without the gospel, there is no faith. Without a free gospel of God's radical, reconciling, redemptive grace, Christianity is nothing more than dead religion. Do you need more gospel in your faith? Has your faith become something other than the gospel? Has it become about a list of rules to, father, uh, rules to follow rather than a gift to receive? Are there areas of your life that you need to take inventory and ask, 
am I living a life centered on a free gospel? When others not only hear my words, but see my actions, am I living in a way that looks like free grace filled, like a, looks like a free grace filled gospel? Your heavenly Father is absolutely nuts about you. And that's the truth of his gospel. Am I treating others like they are actually loved by God? Am I living into God's faithfulness for my life with, with actions that are marked by a life saturated in gospel identity? Are there areas of our church life where we need to take inventory and ask, are we a church that is simply kind of inward focused, or are we doing church in a gospel-shaped way that looks that, that, is, that is inward focused but is also outside those doors, that is pointed in the direction of outside those doors. There's a Russian, 20th century Russian Orthodox theologian um, who said this, Christianity entered history as a new social order, or rather as a new social dimension. From the very beginning, Christianity was not primarily a doctrine, but exactly a community. There was not only a message to be proclaimed and delivered and good news to be declared, there was a precisely a new community, distinct and particular, in the process of growth and formation to which members were called and recruited. Indeed, fellowship, koinonia, was the basic category of Christian existence. One of the reasons I've loved and fallen in love with this church is because koinonia has been a basic category for why we're a church. In many ways, many of us have given our lives to this church. And I just don't mean Christ church in the, in the, in the grand sense. I, I mean that I have given my life to the gospel through New Hope Community Church. But as awesome as this community is, I know that it needs to be focused out those doors because that's the kind of God we follow. In the light of the gospel, with that sort of gospel perspective, we can turn what we do here in a way that is intentional at reaching both inward and outward. The work that we do here should make us want to take it there. And the more time we spend out there, the more we know that we can't do it alone. It's silly for us to do it alone. It's heretical for us to do it alone. We need each other. And lastly, we think about the responsibility we have for the gospel. We think of our perspective of the gospel, and then we also think about our maturity into the gospel. Sure, belief is more than simply an intellectual assent. We often use terms, of, uh, terms like belief and faith interchangeably, but, but perhaps faith is belief practiced. I was uh, blessed when I was in high school to um, take a typing class, which my mom made me take. And I was very grumpy because I thought, Mom, why, you know, I, I'll, I don't want to take a typing class and sit there and ASDK, LSM, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, just again and again and again, you're standing there looking at the computer screen and you're like, we did it for hours. And that's all we did in the class was just practice this typing. And I'm sitting there and I'm actually typing this week and I'm thinking that I'm actually a pretty darn good typist. I actually can type about as fast as most people I know. And I'm thinking about, like, the reason that was is because I was intentional or, you know, my mom was intentional, about making me take this class when I was a kid, when I was in high school. Uh, our maturity takes a process. It's a, it's a spiritual formation, and that's really what we're going to be focusing on next week as Paul gives this uh, 
very famous, very uh, popular um, uh, verses from 1 Corinthians about winning the prize. Um, the gospel intends believers uh, to be slaves of Christ, vessels of grace, agents of the kingdom, people worthy of God's name. Kevin Van Hooser says that evangelicals need to uh, recapture a passion for biblical formation, a desire to be formed and reformed and transformed by the truth and the power of the gospel. Um, how can we as a community do that better? How can we work with each other um, at spiritual formation? Because if we were, I just wonder what if we were a community who gathered around the common mission of advancing that gospel and helped each other to become disciplined for that work at hand, to think about what the work of the day requires, what love requires of us, how is the gospel fueling what we do and giving us perspective on what we do because Jesus is king and we're going to start living like